This is an official communication from the government of Sofistan. From the country that invented the Switch Side Visa. And where every restaurant's soup of the day is, convince me. You are listening to the Republic of Sofistan podcast. Citizens of the Republic around the world are committed to one common cause. Liberation. Liberating your mind and your voice from poor habits of underdeveloped rhetoric, debate, and argumentation. Got a comment for us? Email us at podcast at sofastand.com. I am the Minister of Education for the Republic of Sofistan, Dr. Steve Yano, and I invite you to join me to decolonize your mind and explore the practices of debate, rhetoric, and argumentation that will liberate your mind and voice and help you become a sophist. Anchor.fm slash Republic of Sophistan. Welcome to another episode of Republic of Sophistan. You know, last week, President Trump appeared on national TV in the U.S. and addressed the entire nation to justify his wall between the U.S. and Mexico border. The speech was less than 10 minutes long. It offered no new information or new research. It was light from my point of view. The response by Senator Schumer and Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi both gave responses that were also light. Lacking development or explanation, these speeches expressed claims on truth with little else. One thing the Democrats and the president share is the idea that we should simply believe them without a lot of questions. Both speeches appeared to appeal to audiences that were already convinced. It doesn't take a lot to convince someone who believes illegal immigrants are criminals who bring the worst type of element to the United States that there's a connection between them and building a border wall and the elimination of this criminal element. It also doesn't take a lot to convince someone who believes in strong individual choice and the necessity of helping people out who are less fortunate than you that a wall won't stop or deter crime at all. And it also sends a very bad message as a symbol to the world about the United States' opinion on immigration. Both speeches I would classify as buyer's remorse kind of speeches, the kind of thing that you'd offer to someone who had already bought into a position, an ideology, or an attitude, and you wanted to make sure you have kept them there by reinforcing that extant belief. In rhetoric, we call these speeches, and the, we would classify these speeches under the category of epideictic, the title term used by Aristotle in his rhetoric. Oftentimes, we call them ceremonial speeches. Most public speaking textbooks would do that in the United States and elsewhere. But in Sophistan, we call them foundational speeches. These are speeches that are starting places for more complex, deeper dives into the questioning of the motives of a person, a government, an audience, or ourselves. Those are listed in the level of difficulty that we'd assume they'd be, as I would tend to feel it's hardest to address an audience directly about their own behaviors and say, hey, you should question yourself, question your beliefs. Whereas everyone can get behind a dog pile on a particular person or a singular event and say that this was really bad or good or this doesn't represent us or this does represent us. 
It's always a question of representation. Who are we? What do we stand for? What do we value? In the United States, these speeches are poorly done, if they are done at all. President Trump's speech on the idea of a southern border wall attempted to minimize the question of cost and effectiveness by deterring the questions to the law enforcement community. This is what they have asked for, along with other things. They need this $5 billion border wall, etc. In Sovastan, we think this should have been at the heart of the speech. Instead of pushing it off behind a wall of credibility or deferring to the pure ethos of the law enforcement community, we'd expect the president to discuss American values, the hard work of American people, for about maybe 10 minutes, and then using that as a foundation to draw on as a basis for articulating reasons why this wall, this plan, is not only effective, but good. It is odd to take the starting point of what we do in Sofistan, that of need, and make it the entire speech. American speech professor Alan Monroe wrote a speech textbook in the 1930s that was revised twice. This doesn't seem remarkable, but Professor Monroe's book offered a new and highly unusual way of thinking about putting speeches together. In his book, he called it the motivated sequence, and today we call it Monroe's motivated sequence. It survives long after him in his book. As an aside in his book, he also put in the 1930s edition, which I have a copy of here next to me on my bookshelf here in the embassy, uh, what public speaking on the radio requires. How does that change things? And then in the 1950s, predictably, a chapter on how to speak on television, the new and exciting technology of public address. I'm sure if Alan Monroe were around today and still writing speech textbooks, I'm sure there would be a chapter in there on YouTube. He did call it the motivated sequence after the idea that speech is primarily designed or only designed to motivate people to question their beliefs. He split up speech creation into steps, attention, need, satisfaction, vision, and action. Each step follows logically from the one persuasively before it and builds the idea of your speech in the audience. First, you call their attention to your address, explaining why you're speaking and why it matters they listen to you. Secondly, you establish a need, often a problem. Then you explain how that problem can and should be solved. Then you provide a vision of what that looks like when the solution is executed. Then you call on the audience to take a particular action to make that vision a reality. Something simple, something direct, not pie in the sky, but something they could do now. Taking a look at both of the speeches on immigration, we see, both of them see, we see that both of them are solely articulations of need. There is a problem, and that problem is that this is the entirety of both of these speeches. It should be no surprise that this is the way the speeches went. Gone is the idea in the United States that people can change their mind or should change their mind based on well-formed words. In this poverty of rhetorical reason, presidents and senators and House of Representatives members, even the Speaker of the House, can only state what they think their audience already believes and do the right thing by those who are already convinced. Neither side attempted in any way to persuade those who are neutral or opposed to their ideas. They only spoke about foundations, the need, why that need is bad, and they never really got into what we would properly call a speech in Sofistan. Why did the American political leaders, the leaders of the government here, with over $5 billion on the line and the livelihoods of numerous government employees and those who depend on their offices to conduct their lives and businesses, have little more to say than we have a problem? Well, I thought about this, and it brought me back to my holiday back home in Sofistan. I've just gotten back to the embassy after having a great time at home, 
arguing with everyone over dinner and drinks. We had many great arguments, many great speeches, lots of passion. Everyone had a great time intensely disagreeing with one another about all of the issues of the day facing the globe. One of the favorite things to do at a family gathering or big dinner is a classic twist on a part of education that all self-esteemers know, the declamation assignment. Now, I know some expats are out there groaning, listening to this, oh, declamation, of course, or shaking their head and laughing, thinking about moments, but it's at the heart of the educational process for all self-esteemers is to engage in rigorous declamations or even some fun ones. It struck me after about the fourth or fifth speech of the night at uh, one dinner I was at that this would be the waking nightmare of an American. A declamation, for those of you who don't know, is an exercise where one is given a difficult disagreement, a question, a hypothetical situation. Then you have to compose a speech supporting one or the other side to resolve the dispute. The cases are often very strange, very unusual things, and the game is to see how well you can marshal the values and beliefs of the audience, constituted as society as a whole, to justify your reasoning and your position. Americans don't have a schooling experience like this, one based on creativity and community, not even in higher education. It's based instead on individual accomplishment to the detriment of the people sitting around you. There's a focus on knowledge as truth in schooling. It is a commodity that must be made, stored, and exchanged to create value when needed. Contrast this attitude to the rhetorical education, which is never individual in Sylvestan. Audiences are required for knowledge to even be knowledge. For a phrase to count as knowledge, the audience has to buy it. We study and practice that. And the work of the rhetor is evaluated all the time by teachers and audiences, or maybe we should say audiences as teachers, based on the context, the available evidence, and the spirit of the moment. Perhaps a way to think about this is that there's no knowledge to gather and internalize. There's only a comfort with a regular practice that is not only challenging, but enjoyable and never-ending. Most Americans are happy their schooling comes to an end. Most Sophistanis find schooling to be the place where all the comfortable practices that delight and inspire them for the rest of their lives start. We're constantly trying to create declamation instances in our daily lives, whereas Americans flee from anything resembling school, even after their higher education which is always baffling to me until I made that connection. When we see the president and senior politicians of the United States address the nation in a way that would embarrass any Sophistani middle schooler, we can see the root of the problem. Speeches don't matter. They are a pure motion in the terms of Kenneth Burke. Now is the time for a speech. Now is the time for a response. There's little to consider in questions of human motivation here, and even less to consider from the speech itself. It constitutes nothing. It just is. It is the right form, filled out correctly, and placed in the right folder. There's little more to it. To speak for such a short time and never make a move to push anyone in the audience to rethink their position as a citizen, an American, or a human being, is to miss the basic move of any effective public speech, and also to make speech a drudgery, not even fun, interesting, or worth our time to listen to. And these people are at the highest level of the government. Where are their sources of evidence? Where are the quotes and stories from those admired figures from the past who everyone can respect? Where are the vibrant narratives that take us out of our lives and show us what it might be like to live differently? Where are the narratives of honor and bravery that we can see ourselves and our families being a part of, contributing to, or having a connection to in our family histories? Where is the inclusion and exclusion of what it means to be American 
and what it doesn't. We get none of these questions from either speech. We get the idea that stating the facts, seen as beliefs that are really, really firm and beliefs that basically you couldn't disagree with, right and wrong, that's all that's needed. Look at Nancy Pelosi for an example. She knows what's right and calls it a fact. Chuck Schumer knows what's right and he calls that a fact too. Now, we can believe in facts, that's fine, but facts are not our beliefs. Facts require charity. That might be very ironic to a lot of you listening, but the reason they require charity is that we have to understand the audience can think and might think differently than we do. We can't think that the audience is in error or just doesn't know the facts, which is what Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, and Donald Trump all did in their speeches. It requires respectful invitation towards the audience to take a break from their viewpoint and consider another one. We have none of that in the United States. As a regular part of political life, we have journalists and public figures and elected figures, elected official figures, considering themselves as the purveyors of simple truths. This is wrong. This is right. Good night. What a horrible way to live. What a horrible way to conduct politics. Life without the richness and play of the rhetorical. One is scarcely able to judge. To present the right idea, simply right by its existence, and that you must not be aware of it as the only warrant to agreeing with it, is to miss the importance of thinking and feeling in the arrival of good judgment. Maybe this absence in American political life and discourse is responsible for the endless parade of cop and judge television shows on here and films where people suffer from a lack of being able to persuade. It's only when close to the end of the movie, when an accidental exposure of information happens to the right person, that justice is done. And the forensics TV shows don't even feature the rhetoric of the attorneys. One is guilty or innocent as an absolute non-negotiable experience of being in the same room with an empirical fact. So, why should we even listen or pay attention to political speech in the United States if it's so grim? It's simply evidence that there's a poverty of rhetorical thinking and feeling here. Is there anything meaningful? Well, to address this question, we must again, we must again turn to rhetoric for the answer. First, speech constitutes identity. This means when we speak, we are speaking from the position of who we imagine ourselves to be. This is communicated to the audience and helps them decide if we are worth listening to or not. Of course, a senior congressperson or a president has a much lower bar for saying, hey, I'm worth listening to than, than we do. But um, they don't need a lot of uh, words to conjure that reason up for you. But they still cannot help but speak from a position of how they perceive themselves as these figures. That is, when the president speaks, he or she has in mind all the other presidential speeches and what they look like. And from that governs what a president must look like when speaking. Uh, we also do that in the audience when we look to official figures. This is a senator. This is a poet. This is a teacher. That discourse has to meet those basic requirements or we simply don't believe it. That's one thing to look to. How do they imagine themselves in their role? And is that imagination something that we want to assent to? Is that something we identify with? Secondly, and much more importantly, Speech also always reveals how the speaker views the audience. The theory of the universal audience tells us that when speakers imagine their words will be persuasive, they imagine those words will be persuasive to an audience they also conjure in their mind. That is, the audience of the people who will encounter them, will they be persuaded by this? So it's not to their 
advantage to imagine a weak-minded audience or an audience of idiots. It's to their advantage to imagine the audience as they truly are in their mind and then create arguments that persuade them. This gives us insight into how the speaker views us as an audience. We can then judge them based on how they see us. Is this the way we think and judge? Is this a good uh, normative way to think and judge? Is this what we want to be associated with? Is this the model of citizenry we want to be? Is this a charitable way to imagine how we think and feel about this issue? Finally, one can use the discourse of politicians, however bad, to raise questions about how to better discuss the issues that face us. Or they can be used as starting points for inquiry as to how to handle and address the conflicts we have in our daily life. The disrespect for audience shown by these two speeches is very clear, and we would not want that same disrespect for our friends and family. Listen to me. I know what's right. I have the best idea. I'm in charge. This kind of thing does not work with people who you care about. We'd want a better approach, obviously, but we can also have the discussion about what sort of civic body can be made by dividing our identity from the one conjured by our politicians. Instead of rushing to defend the side we should be on, we, should, we can rush to a critical position on speech itself and ask for better evidence, better thought, better words, and better care in what's presented to us. We can also ask this very haunting question, what about American politics means that we can no longer attempt to persuade our opponents? Why do we not even try? It is that question that is both asked and someone answered by this set of embarrassing speeches about immigration. Immigration is an issue that should be evergreen, not because we can't come to an agreement on a visa policy or border checkpoints, but because this question allows us to openly and honestly debate about who we are, what we stand for, and what values constitute us or should constitute us as a people proud to be called American, or for that matter, Sophistani. But we never agree on that. We're always constantly bringing that up. But that's the fun part of rhetoric. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode. This has been the Republic of Sunnistan Podcast. If you like it, please consider subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Radio Public, or Anchor.fm slash Republic of Sovastan. Republic of Sovastan is a production of International Debate Research Associates, LLC, in New York. All content is solely and totally the responsibility of International Debate Research Associates. Thank you for listening. See you next week.